0: we'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor cash app cash app has been the number one finance app on the app store for almost two years it was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support bitcoin and it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app. So be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code, it's really that simple cash app also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider like cash card a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at lyft whole foods and places like chick-fil-a it's also a favorite of the blocks analyst Steven zhang he saves money at chipotle every time he gets a burrito that keeps Stephen happy, that keeps the block happy, and that keeps the crypto world informed with the best news and research in the entire market. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in for what is an incredibly exciting episode of The Scoop, because there is an actual scoop tied to it. We're joined by Michael Sonnenschein, the Managing Director at Grayscale, one of the largest asset managers, probably the largest asset manager, a couple billion dollars under their helm here in New York City. And I am, of course, joined by Ryan Todd, my very special co-host and and an analyst at The Block. Michael is joining us to share news of a record-breaking number of inflows into the firm's many different crypto asset funds. Michael's been with the firm Since 2014, I believe, he's risen through the ranks. He's got a small but gritty team over there, sitting alongside our other friend, Michael Morrow. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Please, uh, I guess the best place to start, if we're going to start anywhere, is with this quarter three report. It's a record-breaking quarter. What's behind it?
1: Well, first of all, thanks for having me.
0: I'm sorry for being late.
1: Well, you know, that the public apology is, is really, really, I, I got to say, I really appreciate it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, let's dive into the numbers. This was an amazing quarter for Grayscale. We raised uh, just shy of $255 million in the third quarter of 2019, which breaks every preceding quarter we've had in the six-year history of the Grayscale business. Uh, The flows were mostly dominated by institutional investors, which I think is probably one of the most important things for us to talk about, Frank. You know, I think whether it's you guys or other folks in the press, you're always asking us, where are the institutions and why aren't the institutions coming into digital currencies yet? And I would argue that they've been not only showing up to grayscale, but they've actually been showing up in droves.
0: It's interesting. Um, I think you make a good point. There is this Dichotomy that I'm seeing as well. Uh, you have certain players that are doing better than others. When we look at companies like Fidelity that's off to a slower, gl- gross, slow and steady pace back, the volumes aren't quite where we would want them to be, perhaps. Um, there aren't that many headlines about larger hedge funds and larger pension funds uh, entering the market or entering the fray, but we do have. These numbers at the same time. So, sure. is it? Are they quieter firms that maybe don't want the press attention? Um, well, what, you know, what is Grayscale's "quote unquote" secret if they're attracting these vi- these inflows that uh, other firms might necessarily might not necessarily be well, seeing?
1: Well, by and large, it's difficult if you're a hedge fund or an institution or even as an individual to get exposure to digital currency. Folks have got to figure out where they're going to buy it, how they're going to transfer it, how they're going to store it, how they're going to safe keep it. And that's challenging because it's definitely not the same as going into your brokerage account, punching in some stock symbol and just clicking buy. And then all the settlement and payment kind of happens in the background for you automatically. right? Digital currencies are totally different from that. And so I think the, the secret of what, or not so secret sauce at Grayscale is the fact that we have packaged digital currency exposure into a security. And so if you're a hedge fund, if you're a high net worth investor, you can buy into any one of our private placements any day of the week. We have 10 different funds. Interesting, And that lets you do something that feels very familiar to any of the other investments you make. It's a security with a QSIP and has audited financial statements and produces tax
0: documents. It's, it's what investors want to see. So let's break it down. Why What I, as an investor at large, say I manage hundreds of millions of dollars, break down for me why it's better or more familiar to invest via these private placements? This is a security. As opposed to onboarding through the, you know, a lot of these crypto exchanges have institutional offerings. Why is it better to get the exposure via private placement as a hedge fund versus just opening up an account with white glove services on Coinbase?
1: I think a lot of hedge funds just by mandate can't hold the digital asset, right? It needs to be held either with a qualified custodian or be something that they're easily able to have on their books and records. And so I think for a lot of folks, when we start talking to not just the CIO, but when they're ready to invest and we start talking with the legal teams and the auditors and the risk teams, the fact that they have something that is a security that has a QCIP and that's audited is exactly the same thing as any other instrument or derivative that any of these funds use when they're looking to gain exposure to something. If they're to buy digital currency directly, they have to figure out who at the firm is going to have access to the private keys. They're going to have to determine what's the appropriate cadence of checking the balances of the digital assets, et cetera. quite honestly, investors are really more so and should be more so focused on when's the right time to gain and take off exposure to certain assets, not necessarily worrying about the security and safekeeping of, of an asset they're invested in. I get
2: that, I get that argument. Uh, something I'm always curious about is what, how do you compare that versus, say, the regulated futures that are now starting to come out, whether that's BAC's physically delivered product or even CME's uh, Bitcoin futures product Uh, You know, hedge funds do have familiarity with those types of products. What's the value add with Bitcoin Trust?
1: We have a lot of our clients using futures to hedge, no question about it. But I think that there are some of them that are either looking at capital requirements related to using some of those products. And when they look at the transactional costs, they would actually deduce that it is more cost effective to gain exposure to Bitcoin through Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, then it would be for them to either use futures or even buy these assets directly if they had the legal framework that allowed them to buy and hold directly, which most institutions unfortunately don't.
0: Bottom line is you're saying it's cheaper to buy GBTC as opposed to even with to- the premium?
1: Do you guys do you guys
2: take that into account
1: as well? Just, so uh, where our institutions are getting involved is through our private placement. So any of our institutions can come to Grayscale directly, buy at NAV on a daily basis, and that way they're actually getting exposure to digital currency directly at a price that reflects where it is on a given day when they're investing.
0: So let's focus in on that for one second um, because it has been a topic of conversation, which is the premium that sometimes occurs with this product, um, sometimes hundreds of percent percentage points in some cases with certain products. Is that something that you guys can remedy? And, and in conversations with clients when they bring this up, how do you sort of walk them through the understanding of it?
1: So if you're an accredited investor, high net worth individual, family office, hedge fund, other type of institution, you can buy into the private placement uh, for Grayscale Bitcoin Trust or any of our other products. You're subject to a one-year holding period, at which point you're able to get liquidity on your investment by selling your shares into the public market. So for Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, that is symbol GBTC. And as you guys suggested, that does historically and currently trade at a premium to the fund's net asset value. That is primarily a function, we believe, of supply and demand in the market. There is more demand than there is supply of shares available because this is the only security available in the U.S. that lets investors gain exposure to Bitcoin right alongside any of the other assets they may own in their brokerage accounts or Retirement accounts, etc., and so it is not something that we can directly remedy. So much as the price is really dictated by the market on a day-to-day basis.
2: Do you guys get excited when, or not excited? I don't know, but uh, it's favorable when ETFs on Bitcoin don't get passed, right? For your product, just just in general, like it's it's still the only avenue for these types of investors to get exposure into this uh, product, but. Uh, What would happen? How would that change if there was an ETF?
1: So we actually spent uh, 2017 working on registering our product as a 33-act ETF and ultimately pulled out of the process, just citing that the market wasn't ready for it, nor were really regulators. And so I think that when we have conversations down in D.C., folks have generally been pretty proactive about the space the level of understanding that they have when we're there has ramped up so substantially over the last few years. And I think an ETF is really more of a matter of when, not so much a matter of
0: if. So, specifically, does it impact your business in any meaningful way, whether one gets approved or not?
1: I think we're in favor of seeing any additional on-ramp into the asset class. So, whether... We now have an additional derivative using backed as opposed to only having CME or seeing exchanges have better KYC and AML or even seeing additional access products get launched. The more avenues there are for capital to flow into the asset class from our standpoint, the better the asset class will be overall.
0: That's cool. So Grayscale has uh, made some waves, has gotten some attention for their recent Drop Gold campaign. It's been a couple months in the making. You guys put a lot of resources. I actually see the commercial pretty frequently on, on YouTube and, and uh, other business shows, CNBC. Yeah. What, what has the success of that product looked like? And has it played into uh, this pretty significant uptick of non-Bitcoin trust inflows since a few months ago?
1: Sure. Well, so drop gold, hashtag drop gold, we launched in the beginning of May of this year. And so the idea behind the campaign has been and continues to be a call to action for the investment community. It is now nearly 2020. And we're starting to task investors with this question, which is what constitutes a store of value? It historically has been gold, But that may have made more sense for a physical age. And as we are in fully immersing ourselves now in this digital age, perhaps gold doesn't hold up as much as it once did as that store of value. And perhaps investors need to think about a digital store of value such as Bitcoin. And the campaign has been really the core of that question uh, for the investment community. And so dropgold.com, we created to kind of house a bunch of educational content for investors thinking through this question. And as Frank said, you know, the campaign has taken the form of even a TV ad um, that's been playing on CNBC and, you know, other outlets throughout the year. And I think what we've learned through the campaign is this is not only a narrative that is resonated with the investment community zero question about that but i think more so that it has driven awareness around grayscale and driven awareness around the product offering so we'd certainly attribute the sum of the success of the campaign back to a record-breaking quarter for us on the asset raising front
2: outside of the the campaign what what other types of uh getting out there in front of investors like what's that process look like uh I imagine is it in person? Like, are there a lot of meetings? Like, what, how do you actually bring in actively?
1: Sure, it's it's important for us to uh, be out in front of investors. While most investors these days we encounter have that kind of preliminary 101, 201 digital currency education, I think it is still interesting to see in the age that we're in that handshakes and and face-to-face interactions and giving investors the opportunity to ask questions that they may not otherwise ask through a phone call or over email is something that we do in person. So, our team is out on the road quite a bit um, with investors and, you know, we'll descend on a city, um, you know, (laughs) call it Chicago or, you know, we were just in Vancouver a couple days ago and, What's been interesting to see is that even though we only give ourselves, you know, call it two or three days in a given place, we're actually so busy, we're either having to divide and conquer as a team to make sure we see everyone, or in a lot of instances, we're actually turning down meetings and having to schedule follow-up calls or emails because we just don't have enough time while we're in a given place to, to kind of see everyone.
0: And what are some of the questions that they're asking?
1: So there's certainly going to continue to be questions around regulation um, and what we think the regulatory landscape looks like now and how it'll shift. I think more than anything, investors are curious about information, right? And so we point investors to this quarterly report that we put out, which I think from our standpoint and a lot of folks in the industry standpoint has really become the de facto sentiment indicator for flows into digital currencies. And so when you look at a quarter like this, and it's not just Bitcoin dominating the flows, but we're seeing flows to Ethereum and to Ethereum Classic um, and other products across the Grayscale family, I think investors can actually take those insights and actually do something about them. These are actionable intelligence items for them.
0: Is that something you're looking to package up and offer to them in a way that that they can make more actionable investment decisions around some of your data? Yeah. I think this report
1: is publicly disseminated um, each quarter. And, you know, having the opportunity to sit down and chat about it with with guys like you is, is exactly what we want to do. So folks do have the right tools, you know, in their tool belt, so to speak, to make informed investing decisions.
2: We talked about the drop gold campaign that relates more directly to Bitcoin's thesis. Uh, and you mentioned flows have been more mixed this quarter, which is which is good to see. Um, how does that conversation shape then like when you're when you're trying to explain the value of these other types of products that you have?
0: That's a good question versus
2: Bitcoin.
1: I think there's zero doubt that most investors we are approaching or who are approaching us have probably done most of their homework around Bitcoin. They're the most resources available to them on Bitcoin. It's kind of overcome quite a bit of adversity over the 10, 11 years it's been around. And so that's probably where they're most comfortable deploying capital as a result. But what we very quickly find is that investors like to diversify. They see that there's diversification benefits even within the digital currency asset class, not just by having digital currency as part of their portfolio, but within digital currencies themselves. And so following usually an investment in Bitcoin, we start seeing folks look at assets like Ethereum, Ethereum Classic, or even looking at our diversified fund, um, digital large cap fund.
0: But is it them coming to you with this thesis of hey, this is why I want to invest in Ethereum Classic, which... Which,
2: which definitely saw translates. uptick this, this quarter. Did it? Yeah. Well, by how much? I, mean, I don't know. No, it's
0: okay.
2: I'm not... What
1: <laughs> it I think that...
2: It's noticeable in the bar graph that Ethereum Classic... It's noticeable the Classic.
0: bar that <laughs> Ethereum Classic had a big uptick. I think. But, but, sorry, not to interrupt, but really quickly, do they come to you with the thesis on Ethereum Classic, which saw a big uptick, or do you sort of say, hey, you, you got into Bitcoin... Here's why maybe Ethereum Classic might be interesting.
1: Mm -hmm. We try and put tools like that in front of investors, right? So we've written theses around some of these different assets for investors to take a look at. And then very recently, we launched a new educational series called Building Blocks, where we kind of do a relatively agnostic um, deep dive into each digital currency and give that to investors. So as they're thinking about, which of the currencies they want exposure to and which they don't, they have some good resources in front of them to make those decisions.
0: And you were talking about what might have been behind the Ethereum Classic.
1: I'm eyeballing it. It
2: looks like 20 million this quarter, roughly. I'm not sure. Incremental.
0: I think that
1: the Ethereum and Ethereum Classic um, communities are probably working more collaboratively than they ever have before. I think we have a lot of investors who are excited about the technological promise embedded in Ethereum as a technology and often want to gain exposure to both Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. And I think it's also worth noting that this past quarter is when our Ethereum product got approved for its public quotation, um, ticker symbol ETHE. And so investors continue to look at those products even more Probably once they have a public quotation, given that there's then a known path to liquidity and just kind of elevates the profile of the product a little more.
0: That makes sense. Let's shift gears and focus in on you, Michael. You joined Grayscale from JP Morgan from the Wall Street World in 2014. Tell us a little bit about your Bitcoin journey. So I wasn't on a Bitcoin journey.
1: I was a I've now or any worked, of us really. Well, you know, I don't actually even know how you found your way into this, but you asked me I the was question. Forced.
0: Yeah, go ahead.
1: So, um, you know, I was a J.P. Morgan at the time. I was having then at the that time worked at three bulge bracket banks. I was ready for an environment that was smaller where I would have a little bit more autonomy and I wanted to stay within financial services. So actually most of my search was around hedge funds and family offices and things like that. I had the fortunate pleasure, however, to interview with our founder and CEO, Barry Silbert. And when I met Barry, we only had, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 minutes together, tops. And I had found the opportunity to work with Barry uh, on LinkedIn of all places. And actually, I have to say, this is not a plug for LinkedIn, but some of our best employees at Grayscale, we have all found through LinkedIn, surprisingly. Not through recruiters or anything like that. It's, it's Great
0: scoops on LinkedIn too.
1: Yes, there are. And um, and so Barry and I had a good chat and what my knowledge of Bitcoin was at the time was de minimis. I remember sitting in my office in J.P. Morgan I'd see maybe Bitcoin flash up on CNBC every once in a while, but no one cared. I mean, people were interested in, you know, the, the jobless claims numbers and, you know, any other kind of economic data or earnings reports coming out. No one really cared what was going on with Bitcoin when CNBC would report on it. And Barry kind of gave me his pitch on why he was so excited about Bitcoin. And I very politely told him, you know, it sounded cool. It sounded interesting. But I was probably going to go work for this hedge fund. And he actually, of all things, because my initial role with him was to do sales for Grayscale, um, he actually had me sell him, of all things, a pen. And I must have done a damn good job selling him that pen because Barry said to me, why don't you come work for me? Why don't you come help me build something? And if at any point it feels...
0: Had already was already operating Well, we at had this point.
1: just launched the Bitcoin Trust, right? So the Bitcoin Trust launched in September of 2013. So this is early January 14. And he said to me, come help me build something. And if at any point it feels like it's going off the rails or this doesn't feel aligned with what you want to do career-wise, you can always go work for a hedge fund or always go work for a family office. But take a chance. And um, I think within 24, or 36 hours, they had made me an offer. And I said, you know what? I'll take the risk. I'll take the chance. And I was smart enough to actually negotiate a couple of Bitcoin from the company as part of my starting package back then. And the rest is history. Six years later, um, we've grown from one product with about $60 million in AUM when I joined, to today, 10 products and over $2 billion of AUM. So it's really been amazing to kind of be a part of the journey.
0: Was there at any point you mentioned he kind of, as part of his proposition, said if we ever get off track, uh, either reel us back in or you can go off somewhere and do something else. Was there any point where you felt like the company was not going in the direction that you wanted it to?
1: Actually, don't think that there really has been. And I think that's been one of the most amazing things about working with and for Barry, which is that he's always been kind of prudent about keeping headcount low and keeping a really lean and mean team and you know allowing us to move through, you know, crypto winter and times maybe when it was all about blockchain and not about Bitcoin, and then kind of keep morale alive and positive at the team and you know, the company as a whole. So you know, we've we've definitely been through a few cycles, to say the least, over the last couple of years. But at no point was uh, my interest in being there and helping him build this, you know, ever wavering.
0: Well, let's look about let. Let's look forward and think about what's going to become of Grayscale um, over the next year. You have ten products now. The staff isn't that much bigger from a few years ago. You you have been able to maintain a lean team doing basically the same thing, pitching family offices, uh, financial advisors on these products, growing your AUM. Does the future of Grayscale look different than what it's looked like in the past? And how would you relate it maybe to a... I feel like whenever someone comes on the show or frequently they'll say, well, we're the X for the Bitcoin world. We're the, you know... You want me sack. to say
1: we're the X for the, for the whatever <laughs> world? Yeah. The X for the Y? You know, I think that we as a business have taken our cues from the incumbent asset managers, um, the wisdom trees, the, you know, the state streets, the iShares of the world. And we've modeled ourselves after those companies because it's been about finding the best possible service providers to surround each of our products um, and do what we can to manage those relationships and constantly make sure that the products get the time and attention that they need from each of those service providers. And so if I had to say, we'd kind of be the wisdom tree or the eye shares of the digital currency asset class by giving investors a whole family of access products so that they can get exposure to the asset class. That's, that's kind of who Grayscale is and will continue to be. And I think if we look at the next year, um, sure, we'll probably add to headcount a little bit. I think you'll see a little bit more from us on the hashtag drop gold campaign. You will maybe see us launch a couple of new products, but time will tell. I think that's a delicate balance for us. It's what products we think are investable and are good opportunities, balanced with what investors are telling us are the areas of the market they want exposure to that, the current lineup doesn't already provide. And I think we'll also continue to really invest in putting out good content. Um, You know, these quarterly reports really do give investors actionable insight and other educational content like our Building Block series. So excited to kind of continue on all those fronts as we, you know, move into next year.
0: What does the process of adding new products look like in terms of expense, human capital? Could you, obviously this regulatory hurdles to getting a product online. What, what is to stop you from launching as many products as, as, as possible, so to speak? Good question. Um, I mean, I think the,
1: the most obvious ones for us that screen out products we can't launch are things like, are there sound custodial solutions for a given asset? Is there an addressable market? Is there an accessible market? Is there a fair pricing mechanism that we can use for said asset? Ultimately, some of our products have attracted more capital than others. And maybe that's so much as some of them today resonate with investors more than others, but that may change over time. And so we look at a lot of these products as planting seeds for the asset class as a whole.
0: And when you look at maybe some of the new competitors that are coming online, you know, Bitwise is offering similar similar products as, and recently Vanac, which has failed to get so many ETF applications off the ground, doing something similar, targeting large investors with a with a trust mechanism to to invest or get exposure to Bitcoin. Um, as you go out and you try to pitch new clients or existing clients, but more of their money into the market. Why with you and not with others?
1: I think most investors are attracted to Grayscale because of the operational excellence and the track record that we have. You know, we have now been at this for, you know, a little over six years. We just celebrated the six-year anniversary since we launched our first product. And, you know, in the face of a lot of changes across the ecosystem, we have done a good job of, you know knock on wood finding the right service providers to to surround these products with and have operated in a way that i think gives investors a lot of comfort there's something to be said about Having audited financial statements, and you know, having the right level of disclosure, and maintaining a certain level of operational excellence, and investors, you know, throw due diligence questionnaires at us all the time. Um, and I'm yet to encounter an institution that has not invested with Grayscale as a result of a deficiency there. An institution has only not invested with us in the instance that they just weren't ready. For investing in the asset class, nothing to do with Grayscale specifically.
0: How do you avoid losing a deal like that? Or do you just sort of? You know, some of these
1: are long, protracted conversations. I can think of several of our institutional investors for whom we met with, you know, over the course of two, two and a half years intermittently, kind of giving them updates on how things were changing across the ecosystem um, before they were ever ready to deploy capital whereas i think you know other times we'll encounter firms who you know maybe have an analyst or a portfolio manager internally that's already very excited about the space and so we become kind of this external ally for them and kind of help them make the right pitches internally so that they actually can deploy capital and get buy-in from the rest of their investment team
2: can you unpack a little bit um when you you see these stats of your investor profiles predominantly institutional investors it's like that huge bracket just like what what is an institutional investor Uh, you guys listed as hedge funds are those largely crypto funds or are there long short funds like what's the typical like profile of of these institutional investors
1: so most of our institutional investors are actually not crypto hedge funds that's cool okay Um, most crypto hedge funds I would say are much more actively managing their positions whereas I think the investors who are coming to Grayscale and using the products are usually looking for longer time horizons. They have a medium to long-term time horizon, and that kind of fits with our products anyway because they carry a one-year holding period if you subscribe to the private placements. And I would say that it really runs the gamut of investor types. So we have tons of global macro um, funds who maybe look at digital assets as a way to be short fiat money. Um, or thinking about all the economic and political turmoil going on globally, and this is the right way to hedge against those types of events. We have no shortage of tech investors, right? These are folks that just historically or are currently comfortable investing in tech and are excited by digital assets and blockchain technology. We certainly have no shortage of, um, you know, ARB funds or momentum funds. It, It really... I can't really say that there's any one investor type that isn't represented. But, you know, these are these are storied institutions. And that's probably the other thing that I'd mention to you guys is this has kind of gained momentum throughout 2019. The kind of institution that we're interacting with is getting larger in terms of their AUM, um, is getting longer in terms of their operating track record. And so the picture that I'm hopefully painting for you is one of that the investor that's coming to us is usually not that like startup fund that just got their funding and is trying to swing for the fences early on and building their track record. And it's important to take that away because it's showing, you know, compelling data that institutions who have been through all kinds of cycles are really excited about this asset class and really in fact don't think it's going to go away much the same way that we don't believe it is nor do I think you guys do.
0: What's the biggest what's the biggest what's the biggest fund? how large is the biggest fund invested with you guys?
1: We have funds that are over ten or fifteen billion dollars in aUM as clients it's
2: wow. exciting Damn, that's huge this is, i I would agree I mean like this is like a, a evolving data point that I feel like more people should be aware of uh,
0: just so is it is it so my understanding of you know when I talk to the the different exchanges there are some who have onboarded or have done due diligence. We're talking about the D.E. Shaw's of the world um, who have done due diligence on, on companies like Coinbase to onboard um, or other exchanges, but they're not necessarily actually trading or in the market. Do you think that, and we kind of touched on this before, but it is it is an interesting data point that there might actually be firms in the cryptocurrency market that are investing through Grayscale, but not active in other, in other ways.
1: I think that there's a mix, right? We even have investors who want to kind of take a core position, so to speak, in a given digital currency, Bitcoin or otherwise, and then may also say it's important for us to have a little bit of digital currency that we ourselves can manage um, or, you know, experiment with, so to speak. And so they'll work with our sister firm, Genesis, um, you know, an OTC trading desk, and for someone like that type of institution, they're gonna do that in a relatively small way. Um, but we, we see investors that are doing all kinds of things, whether they're um, participating in public markets and in stocks or um, you know different assets that have exposure to the digital currency realm, whether it's chip makers, um, folks that are getting involved in the futures, as we said, to hedge. Um, folks that are looking at things like swaps and, and other ways. So it's it's often a complementary thing that investors can do.
0: Would you say that the larger funds, 5, 10, 15 billion that are invested with you guys, are those positions typically smaller than some of the um, more modest sized investors or? Not necessarily. So it depends, right? We have some
1: investors who uh, come to us and say, you know what, this is X number of dollars or we have X percentage of the fund that we wanna allocate to digital currencies, Bitcoin or otherwise. We, and they just deploy it, right? As soon as possible, they've made the decision, they're ready to invest, they make the decision. We have other investors who look at this position sizing as something they wanna do over time. And so they'll leg into the trade over a series of weeks or months, or we have some investors that do so over a series of years. Um, and so it, it, really, it really depends from scenario to scenario. Um, but again, I think what we're seeing most recently is larger check sizes, larger institutions, and also exploration beyond just exposure to Bitcoin.
2: Did you see? You talked about legging into the
1: trade. Did did people leg into it that July Fourteenth week when when it popped? <laughs> <laughs> well, so that was a that was a big week of inflows. I actually think that was our. We had a day that week where we raised, I think, over seventy five million dollars in a in a single day, which was I think the largest inflow we ever had in a in a mm-hmm. single day at Grayscale. Just as
0: big as when you started at the. Front. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Bigger. Um,
1: And I think that what we're hoping continues to happen is that more investors, um, you know, are excited about the asset class, recognize the diversification benefits, looking for that uncorrelated alpha and look to digital currencies. And whether it's grayscale or futures or otherwise, we're just excited to see more capital flow into the space.
2: You've been in the space now six years full-time working with working with Grayscale uh what gets you most excited about where we're heading as a space over the next year just there's been a lot of developments this year a lot of news flow Mm. um both positive and negative yeah um you know last week there was a flurry of of news updates on Friday Mm -hmm. Um, Libra
0: kind of almost falling apart on the payment side and the ETF denial also happened last week you
2: got CFTC commissioner with uh, Talking Eve about commodities. Like,
1: there's a commodity. Which of stuff is good.
0: That's, that's, good. Yeah, that's good. These yeah. are
1: all good things, but we don't look at these singular instances of news as things that get us excited or keep us committed to the space, right? We're looking at larger trends that maybe aren't spoken about as much or reported on as much. And I think for us, which is something that we've started writing about quite a bit and, and something I think the investing community needs to focus more on, is what's gonna happen to generational wealth as it changes hands. And so we've been looking into this statistic, which is that over the next 25 years, 68 trillion dollars is going to pass from older generations, right? We're talking about baby boomers and kind of um, our parents passing that money down to millennials and Gen X and Gen Y. And if you think about what the profile of that investment is today, right? How is that capital currently allocated? What does it sit in? Is it conservative? Does it have a large proclivity towards owning gold and kind of other historical stores of value? And as it gets passed down to a younger generation, how is that going to shift? So if you inherit that money, are you gonna keep it in things like gold? Are you gonna keep it in things like bonds? And as we look at investor preferences of the younger generation, right, this is the Robin Hood generation, the robo-advisor generation, you know, those kinds of investments just don't resonate with them. And so I'm not sitting here with you guys today saying, oh, all that money is going into digital currencies or going into Bitcoin. But I think we'd all be pretty remiss to not believe that some portion of it is going to go into digital currencies as that wealth shift happens. And when you look at the total outstanding market cap of digital currencies today, and you think about what even a small slice of that $68 trillion moving to digital assets would do, I mean, that is a really staggering statistic, and the numbers get silly very quickly. Yeah,
0: Yeah, we got the numbers right here. Ryan Todd pulling up some nifty numbers from CB Insights.
2: Yeah, it's it's by twenty thirty millennials will hold five x as much wealth as they do now, which is, would be that's about the twenty case trillion, me, mostly.
0: <laughs> five x as much wealth, so I'd have you know, what's five? dollars oh, right, even like $5, ten basis points of <laughs> totally. that would be. And
1: so you have to think about that. What resonates with a younger investor? Is it things like Bitcoin? Is right. it the companies that they are subscribers of and users of and that they patronize all the time? Or is it things like gold, which they've probably never had any kind of direct experience with? And so this is an, a really important theme that we're looking at. And um, again, we don't think it's being spoken about enough.
0: So how do you tap into that, that wealth that's coming, that, that transition of trillions of dollars? Is it partnering with some of the firms you mentioned, the robo-advisors or the Robin Hoods of the world to kind of tap into some of these millennials who are using these platforms and very well soon may be accredited investors themselves.
2: The campaigns
1: help too. Well, yeah, I think the campaign hashtag #DropGold and dropgold.com kind of speaks to a lot of the themes that I'm talking about and is starting to have that conversation be had um, amongst investors. And as you look at newer platforms like Square and Robinhood, etc., I think they're kind of seeing where the puck is going and are starting to skate towards it, right? They're already offering services around crypto assets because their user bases want them and they want those, those, you know, access points. And so it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. But I think if if we're successful in keeping digital currencies um, as you know, as a main part of the financial system, right? Kind of bridging those gaps with respect to custody and safekeeping and order management systems and making all of this easier to access. um, I think we're going to have a difficult
0: time not seeing a lot of that wealth shift into digital currencies. Is there anything that worries you? That that transition of wealth seems to be the North Star and you're not paying attention much to the ebbs and flows of day-to-day news, but is there anything existential that worries you?
1: I don't think there's anything so much that worries me so much as I wish everyone would stop looking at digital currencies and asking when, right? There's such an impatience um, and it's, it's just kind of unnecessary. If you look at where Bitcoin and other digital assets have gone from nothing to something in 10, 11 years, right? We now have derivatives around bitcoin right that trade on exchanges next to assets yeah that have been around for millennia right there is this this narrative around impatience of when is this all going to happen but we'd actually say well stop and actually look at how much has happened over the last 10 11 years and you know take notice of how much clarity we actually do have from regulatory bodies not to mention how much job creation there's been and you know, how much um, in the way there's been around innovations, around cryptography and you know, new ideas around what constitutes money. I mean, this is all really exciting. So if everyone would just kind of own up to how much progress has been made and stop asking about kind of when, we'd all just get back to focusing on, on building around these assets um, and can hopefully continuing to posture them to flourish
0: my grandmother used to say to me have patience that's, anyway that's <laughs> a good one <laughs> I think that is a great place to um, leave things off with our friend Michael Sonnenschein and their quarter three report over at Grayscale thank you so much for joining us thanks for having me guys this was fun Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Scoop. We hope you tune in next time. And don't forget to subscribe and favorite wherever you listen to your podcast. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin. And it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code, It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode.